You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. This is the podcast Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with Sarah Raven and Arthur Parkinson. And this week, we're going to talk about two things that are absolute classic late winter edibles and ornamental crops. And they are snowdrops and rosemary. So, Arthur, tell me what your favourite snowdrop is. My favourite one, Sarah, is unusually for me, it's sort of like a man-made snowdrop, really. It's um, the double snowdrop, Flora Polino. And it's a huge thing. It's like a big old parrot bird cage being hung on by this little pendulum. And um, it's quite short. And you don't really notice it in the garden, apart from it looking like a little ghost or a bit of confetti. But if you pick it, um, and what I love to do is I'll pick it and I'll float it so you can see all these beautiful limey green petals really is the most beautiful creature. So um, I've got quite a few of those in the garden at this time of year, specifically for picking, because unfortunately, unlike the single one, they are no good for bumblebees. Yes, of course, because the nectaries of the flower have been bred into the secondary petaloids, mm. the extra rows of petals, haven't they? Yeah. That's the thing about double flowers. It's, uh, I think you know, let's mention that. Particularly in February, crocus and snowdrops are really essential source of pollen and nectar for the early emerging bumblebees that are coming out of hibernation. And so having snowdrops and crocus uh, aplenty in your garden at this time of year is incredibly important for the survival of, of bee communities. And the singles always will have a higher concentration of nectar and pollen because of this thing of their nectaries being bred into petals. I mean, it's it's a funny thing, isn't it, snowdrop lovers? Because I think me and you fall into the class of wanting to see the more naturalistic in drifts in the orchard, in like semi-woodland parts of the garden, or in, you know, nice terracotta pots. But you've also got these obsessed snowdrop people, haven't you, who have masses of just one bulb on its own in a little plastic pot with a big label in that says its name. And these these bulbs can be worth hundreds, if not thousands of pounds, can't they? It's quite extraordinary. I know. They're called galanthophiles after the oh. Latin name, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yes. No, they are snowdrop nerds. And um, actually, I once went on a snowdrop nerd day. And having gone feeling rather sceptical about the whole thing of this gathering of, of the clans of galanthophiles, I actually left the day having had a most marvellous time, basically looking looking up the skirts of, of snowdrops all day. Because <laughs> uh, that's what they remind me, particularly the double one that you say you love so much, which I do mm. too. It reminds me of ballerina's tutu. They are very much like that. Sort of mm. like all that sort of netting in those multi-layered things. But the interesting thing about snowdrops is if you get it right, you can actually have them that flower before Christmas, can't you? And then through Christmas and January, February and into March. I remember um, once visiting a wonderful garden of two great designers uh, called Julian and Isabel Bannerman. And they had a garden just outside Bristol. They, they're not there anymore. But they had this fantastic thing outside their door in February, which was a not an auricular theatre, which is the thing that we see quite a lot at Chelsea, or perhaps even a cactus theatre, which you sometimes see, but it was a snowdrop theatre. 
And actually, it was a wonderful thing where they just had them in lots of different size of terracotta, just in this sort of tiered, almost like a bookcase, uh, with Gorgeous. handwritten labels for each one. And oh. it, it really, I mean, they did have some extraordinary rare ones, which, as you say, isn't, I'm not a stamp collector. It wasn't so much that, that that interests me, but just the mass of this sort of tiered wedding cake effect of these snowdrops was really moving, actually. It was so beautiful. I've always meant to do it ever since, but I've never achieved it. Yeah, I mean, we do something sort of kind of on a smaller scale, don't we, using the lovely cast iron metal auricular stand that we've got, which holds small terracotta pots. Yeah. And uh, I've got that at home. The the problem I find having a, a very small garden is snowdrops, unlike almost all the other bulbs that we love, they hate being away from the soil. And so I can't just shove them in an onion bag and hang them up to dry like I would do uh. my tulips or my crocuses. If I do that, they wither away. And I've basically chucked a load of money down the drain because they just dry up and they're worthless come uh. the next autumn. I have to keep that dozen terracotta pots, you know, under a little shelf somewhere and, and remember that they're there and not forget about them because I find that that's the only way I can keep them from one year to the next. They really hate to be away from the moisture and protection that soil give them. I don't know if you've found that a picture. Well, I guess that is why they are best divided and transplanted in the green, isn't it? Mm. So you don't plant them as you do with your tulips, etc., in the autumn, you actually most effectively just dig them up from where you've had them in the garden or go to a friend and beg a yeah. bunch from and dig them and then plant them straight into your own garden at exactly mm. the same level, leaving the leaves on and all, which is what's called bulbs in the green, isn't it? Yes. I mean, we've got a big, the garden where I'm at at the moment, there's a big copper in the middle. And although we've got, you know, a cardoon in the middle of it and some fennel, I really want some colour soon so i went to the garden center the other day and bought some ready growing snowdrops they're just peeking out their pots and they've i've had to put them on top of the bulb lasagna they haven't been planted as part of the bulb lasagna they're like a late addition which i hope will will look lovely but that's the only way as you've said you can you can really transplant them happily they've got to be almost constantly alive haven't they when they're being disturbed yeah yeah i think they don't um well there are other bulbs like that too bluebells don't like being dried out mm. aconites is the other one and actually i find lily of the valley is the fourth one as well as the snowdrops that don't like being dried out so they're much best just lifted from a garden or from your own garden divided into clumps of perhaps three bulbs and then replanted in march or april when they've still got their leaves on so they are that woodland class, aren't they? they? They're used to not being left, but being allowed to naturalise under the bracken and, and just free-ranging, aren't they? They don't really want to be tamed so much. But it's interesting you mentioned the, the Bannermans because normally I'd be looking at your beautiful slideshow and I know there's a photo in that slideshow which shows a beautiful old stone trough of snowdrops and cyclamen flowering together, that white and the acid pink. Yes. And it's underneath the huge old gnarled wisteria. Yeah. And as you say in your, your talk, this, this container looks beautiful for, you know, a month. But then as the wisteria comes into life, this it gets forgotten about underneath the, the leaves and the tendrils. And it doesn't get watered or doesn't get any attention. And it's almost like a perennial forgotten about magical show for yeah. just that, that point of the year. 
Yeah, and that again is is by Julian and Isabel that that mm. um, planting, but utterly genius. So the two cyclamen, cyclamen hedrifolium, which does the autumn, cyclamen coom, which does January, February, March, and then uh, galanthus samilarnot, and that's the whopper one that I always think looks like a mini light bulb. You know, it really is <laughs> showy. And you love picking the doubles. I love picking Sam mm. Arnott because it's just, it's like a sort of great um, kind of Moroccan lantern on the table in, in February. And it is really showy enough to, to hold its own. And that's the trio of plants they have in a stone trough. And as you say, the wisteria then covers it up. And then as the wisteria foliage drops in October, out cyclamen hedrifolium emerges from its huge stone trough. It's absolutely genius combination. But I have to say, I reckon planting a stone trough like that would set you back several hundreds of pounds really? in bulbs. Really? kind of thing you'd have to put the order in when you've had a good gin and tonic, because I <laughs> sometimes do <laughs> when it's bulb season. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, no, I, and I, I love them just romping away. Just uh, We've got them under a hedge here where they're, they're just under the hawthorn hedge. And I just went out this morning, actually, and picked the first little bunch. I tend to pick snowdrops. Again, just as I described in the last episode with with salad leaves and herbs, with rubber bands on my wrist. And what I do is I'll pick a little tiny bunch, put an elastic band around it, put it in the bottom of a, a little basket or a little trug, and then I bring them in. Then on the night before in front of the telly or watching Netflix, uh, I'll have made a grid and that will just fit over my smallest bowl that I've got here. And what I mean by that is it's like a concertina wine rack. And so I might put three lengths of willow or dogwood in one direction and then three lengths in another direction. And then as long as I tie the knots going from right to left over each of the junctions, you can then literally concertina the grid away like a wine rack and shove it in the cutlery drawer. And then what I do is I get that out, put it over a little bowl and plop the little bundles of snowdrops through each one of those holes. And then with sharp scissors, I cut the elastic band only at that point because then the grid supports the snowdrops out of the water and gives them a bit more sort of substance and structure. And that will then last a week in water. And um, it's, it's a beautiful way of really making maximum impact from relatively few snowdrops. Mm. It was lovely logging onto Instagram this morning and seeing that you'd, you'd pick the first snowdrops at Perch Hill. And I'd picked some the other day. I just tend to put them in those, um, you know, those old vintage Art Deco bud vases that I love that have got the heavy anchor. You can get really little and diddy ones that, as you put in your caption, is like a doll's house vase. Yeah. And so you only need to pick, you know, a, a dozen snowdrops to make a almost like a runner along a shelf or, you know, in the middle of a table. But we should say the, the picking of a snowdrop flower doesn't hurt the bulb at all, does it, Sarah? It's it's no. the trampling of the foliage that will kill yeah. a clump of snowdrops. It's a bit like the bluebell woods when everyone stopped picking bluebells. Yeah. And what people thought was it's the picking when actually it's the trampling of the, the foliage that stops the bulb from then taking in all that goodness that kills the naturalization of them. I think that's right, isn't it? That's completely right. If you crush the leaf, you stop the photosynthesis and mm. that, that stops obviously making food and storing it back into the bulb. The, but there is one thing to say about both snowdrops and bluebells is don't pull them, always cut them. Because if mm. you pull, particularly a bluebell in a wood, it, it pulls the center of the bulb out and that 
that is in danger of killing the barb. Mm. So you always want to take a pair of scissors with you and cut, not pull. Otherwise, you are in danger of killing them. Mm. And what I also love about them as, as bulbs, and people who garden in London in particular will like this fact, is that um, I think grey squirrels don't like to eat them, do they? I'm oh, pretty sure. I didn't know that. That's well, at least in, in Hooknell in the churchyard, which is plagued by grey squirrels, there's a whole swathe of snowdrops, and surely I think they'd have been eaten by now. So I think they've yeah. probably got something in them that makes them taste horrible to the squirrels. So um, if you're plagued by squirrels, maybe look at snowdrops as part of your, your bulb display en masse. Oh, that's a very good tip. So on to rosemary, which is the other thing that I think of as something really at its peak very, very early in the year. And I suppose that's because it naturally flowers in, depending on variety, January, February, March. And my sort of favourite site at the moment, it's just coming into the into flower here, is a, a bench that we've got, which, and to be honest, this was not <laughs> designed, it's pure luck, but we, we plopped this bench over the top or just sort of in front of two of a, a, a beautiful dark blue rosemary. I think it's called Tuscan blue. And what happened is that the, the it's a slatted bench, both in the seat and the back and the arms, actually. And the rosemary gradually has established and grown up, sort of peeking through the slats in the bench. So when you sit down, you get this incredible, delicious smell of rosemary, but also it breaks up the wood with all these lovely evergreen stems coming through with the beautiful, rich blue flowers at the moment. And it is humming with bees as soon as the sun comes out. So it's sort of for me, again, if I had a tiny city garden with a sunny wall and I only had room literally for a bench and three plants, it would be a bench like that with perhaps three different rosemaries uh, planted around it. And just as that would keep you going and replenish the soul 12 months round. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a photo of it now actually in the catalogue and I can totally imagine sitting there uh, drunk on a summer's evening with the bees buzzing around my head. I mean, it does look absolutely beautiful. I mean, rosemary is is a wonderful plant. I wish people would use it more. I, I get sick of people being addicted to box balls because rosemary will give you that structure, won't it, through the winter as well as giving you flowers and, and something to use in the kitchen. Do you think rosemary will be seen used more? I don't think I've seen it used even at Chelsea en masse properly, really. No, I mean, you're right. It's just, I guess you can't train it in quite the same way. You can't prune it as hard as a box, but it doesn't get no. box blight. Um, it doesn't get box moth. You know, it's got loads of advantages. Uh, we have lots of it here. We actually grow six different varieties and I, I can go through them, but it's the thing that I think more than anything epitomizes the sort of Mediterranean garden and I suppose that's the one thing I would say is you can put box in shade whereas rosemary really does love its favorite spot of all is at the top of a sort of terrace like you see in the Mediterranean with with vines or olives or, or whatever on it and right on the edge of that terrace where there's almost no nutrition at all you'll have a thriving grape bush of flowery mm. rosemary and um, that's where it loves it with its roots baked and really pretty dry and it doesn't need nutrition it just needs that good drainage yeah it's definitely um one of those plants that i would suggest anybody who wants to go on holiday you know for a good three weeks during the summer because it will even in a you know as long as it's in a decent pot 
it will be one of those plants that always looks lovely. And um, I've seen it actually in a, in a pub uh, not too far away. They've got it in quite large window boxes and it's a trailing variety. And at this time of year, it's, it's flowering and it just looks so lovely compared to, you know, having dinky pansies or something, you know, bedding. Mm. Like if you're a lazy gardener, I really think rosemary has, has got a lot of um, un, unseen potential. That one's called prostratus because it yeah. cascades down. And then we have another one here, which is exactly the opposite. It's in totally vertical, which is called Miss Jessup's Upright. Yes, I know. And it's um, the most wonderful plant, if particularly if you're on chalk and on very freely drained soil, to make a hedge because it will it will just be clipped uh, completely into a hedge. I remember seeing it once all the way round a beautiful hillside graveyard in Greece. And there it was just this beautiful, fragrant uh, hedge all the way around this idyllic cemetery, basically. But the whole mm. place was buzzing with bees and scented with rosemary, and it was an absolute dream. But that is uh, the, the one we grow as a hedge here around the herb garden. It's called Miss Jessup's Upright. And then there's another really upright variety, which I'm obsessed with at the moment, that Jekamut Vicar, the queen of herbs, introduced me to. And she actually planted it in our herb garden here. And that's called foxtail. And my desk looks out over the herb garden that she did the initial um, planting plan for. And all the way through the winter, this one, it does look like a fox's brush, very upright, obviously not red, it's dark green, but the underside of its leaf is really silvery and it just catches the light almost like you would imagine a fox's tail. And it just has a sort of silvery highlight, which just makes it so vivid and lively through the winter. So that's another one that I, I really recommend. I, I like them personally because the chickens can't destroy them at home. Oh, is um, that right? I'll probably end up with just a garden of, of rosemary because, you know, once the rosemary gets nice and woody, it's um, pretty pretty tolerable of, of anything. And um, it'd be good, you know, you see it a lot in hospitals more and more, which is really lovely because the scent is lovely to push by. Yeah. And it's a cheap, it is a cheap herb to buy as well, which is always a, a nice thing. But you you take a lot of cuttings on every year, Sarah, of all these varieties, don't you? Yeah. It's an easy thing to do. And you can, apart from actually in March and April when it's growing very, very rapidly, that is not a good time to do it because it's a little bit sappy then, I find. It tends to flop. So I would do it almost any other time. So really from sort of June until October, and I would just pick a big, quite a juicy stem off the main plant. And then I'd just strip uh, side stems off that, ideally taking a little bit of bark of the central stem with the cutting. And then I would remove all the leaves from the side of the stem that are going to be below the soil level when you put your cuttings into the pot. And oddly, pinch out the tip. And what that does is it removes what's called apical dominance. And so rather than the new cutting trying to grow upwards, because it's got a scar there now, it actually does the opposite and grows downwards and forms its roots. And I would put perhaps six or seven cuttings around the edge of a pot and just put them ideally on a heated bench. But if you don't have a heated bench, then just somewhere like on a sunny window ledge with some perhaps some gravel in the bottom of a water containing tray and put it into a gritty mix of compost into that. And then they will root within often two months. 
six to eight weeks, and then you can kick them out of the pot. When you see the roots coming out the bottom, kick them out of that pot when they're in the family and plant them into their own individuals. It's such an easy thing to propagate. And for mature plants, Sarah, I think people get a bit scared of knowing when to cut a big woody, say you've moved into a house and quite often there's a big woody old rosemary bush. Is it like lavender? Should you never cut into the the hard old wood or can you, you know, can you more or less coppice an old rosemary bush? Yeah, no, you can't. You're much better to propagate a new one. And because it's so easy to propagate and um, I would tend to do any pruning twice a year so you can keep it quite compact and I would do that after flowering, so perhaps in May, and then again, perhaps in sort of August, September time, if you want to tidy it up again. But rosemary is, of course, one of the most delicious herbs uh, that any of us can grow, and it's easy as long as you've got the sun. And one of my favorite recipes for almost any time of year is lemon rosemary chicken. And I would just get the butcher to, to chop up a chicken into as many portions as they can get out of it, And then I squeeze the juice of a couple of lemons and take the zest off. And then I pour that over the chicken with a little bit of olive oil. And I bake that in a really hot oven for 20 minutes. And then in goes some waxy potatoes. And I tend to cut them almost into boat shape. So if it's something like anya or whatever, I would cut it into perhaps four boat shaped uh, portions and then just toss all of that together. Oh, did I did I forget to <laughs> to say that you put in the rosemary? So the rosemary goes in at the beginning, <laughs> and um, and then you mix that all up together, put it back in the oven, and that will be done in another fifteen or twenty minutes, and the chicken will be cooked very very quickly. And then I take it out and rest it, and it's just the most beautiful, delicious, um, lovely, lovely, I, I think sort of late winter dish. Mm. Well, I may well I may well try and attempt that. I doubt it though somehow particularly given um, the main ingredient, but uh, it does sound delicious. (laughs) (laughs) If I've got a spare cockerel around the place that particularly annoys me, it may end up being turned into what you've just described. But um, at the moment, we've got nothing like that strutting about, but we'll see in years to come. Arthur doesn't eat chickens. (laughs) And of course, the other thing is, it's very important, and I completely agree with this, and Arthur's trained me brilliantly, is you don't call something that's strutting around the garden or cock-a-doodle doing a chicken you call it a hen chicken is what you eat hens are what lay eggs and what you love very good we hope you've enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful our next episode of grow cook eat arrange we're going to talk about cabea which is one of our very very favorite plants arthur and i both completely adore for many reasons and we'll tell you why and kale as a fantastic thing for late winter picking for the kitchen You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahoven.com.